They didn't have it plugged into the wall. That was the air gap. <laughs> I've got some water today because I'm running a little dry. We're going to be in Romans 8 this morning. If you have a Bible, please turn there. We're going to be in verses 31 through the end of the chapter. Actually, no, I just I said that to see what Todd's response was going to be, because he's doing verses 35 through the end next week. No, we're going to do 31 through 34 this morning. I'll read the text and then pray for the preaching of God's word. Romans 8, 31 through 34. God's word says this. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised? Who is at the right hand of God? Who indeed is interceding for us? Let's pray. Father God, we pray, Lord, for your strength this morning, for your wisdom, Father God for your understanding of these texts that you have made for us, Father God, that they would give us life, life abundantly. Lord, I pray, Lord, that you would help me this morning to, to convey your, your word, your message to us in a, in a manner that would be clear, that would be easy to understand, and that would be helpful to us, Father, as we... Seek out your truth. Seek out your word to change us, Father God. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Imagine with me the following scenario. Federal agents arrive at your house to serve an arrest warrant. They tell you that they, you are being arrested for robbing a bank up the street. Now, you know you didn't do it, but they have all this evidence that points to you. It may be circumstantial, uh, but they believe they have enough evidence to convict you, and so they're going to take you to trial. And, and now, so now you're facing with having to get a lawyer to prove your innocence. You opt not to go with the public defender because these are serious charges. And although you know you're innocent, you want to make sure that you get the best defense possible to help you win the case. So you start interviewing a few lawyers, and you come across a firm who has tried a thousand case in, cases and has never lost. In fact, they never take a case unless they know that they can win. And they agree to take your case. You feel pretty good. 
But nothing's guaranteed. Who knows? Maybe this firm tries 2,000 cases in their illustrious career, and they end up with a record of 1,999 wins and one loss. I know you're probably thinking, that would be me. That would, I would be the one loss. There are other things to consider as well. There's, there's the prosecution team and witnesses that are willing to, to swear that you did it. There's 12 jurors and the judge. All of these making, this, making fighting this case an uphill battle. It's an inherently flawed system, but it's what we've got. How are you feeling about now? Maybe a little scared? Maybe a lot of scared? <laughs> I know I would be pretty concerned. But there's more. Right before the case comes to trial, the prosecution announces it has brought on a new member to the team, a Mr. S. They call him the accuser. And he's got a lifetime of new wrongs that he's compiled, and they're bringing it all against you. And to make things even worse, like as if things couldn't get even worse, but they have, your defense team has just told you they want no part of this. Remember, they, they only take cases they think they can win. I just lost my screen. Oh, here we go. So the trial is about to begin, and you're alone. How are you feeling now? Pastor, give us some good news. <laughs> give us some hope. Help us, Lord. Right? In the book of Job, the accuser went to and fro on the earth looking for someone to accuse. That, that was his job, to accuse. And God allowed Satan to take everything from Job to show that Job was still a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil. And in the end, God restored the fortunes of Job. In Zechariah 3, Zechariah was given a vision of Joshua, the high priest. It says in verses 1 through 4, Then he showed me Joshua, the high priest, standing before the angel of the Lord, and Satan standing at his right hand to accuse him. And the Lord said to Satan, The Lord rebuke you, O Satan, the Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is not this a brand plucked from the fire? Now Joshua was standing before the angel clothed with filthy garments. And the angel said to those who were standing before him, Remove the filthy garments from him. And to him he said, Behold, I have taken your iniquity away from you. And I will clothe you with pure vestments. I did a sermon on this. I had to look it up. It was back in August of 2018. Joanne's not here. She probably has notes. She's 
my favorite note taker for sermons on Sunday mornings. But she would tell you it was August of 2018. The Lord rebuked Satan. Throughout all his accusations, removed Joshua's filthy garments, removed his iniquity, and clothed them with pure vestments. You want some good news? Here's the good news. In Romans 8, Paul tells us we have a new defense lawyer, and his name is Jesus Christ. Amen. The 12 jurors have been replaced by the Holy Spirit. And there's a new judge on the bench. It's God, the creator of the universe, our Heavenly Father. How are you feeling now? Isn't that good news? Satan is rebuked. Our filthy garments have been removed. Our iniquity has been covered and replaced with the righteousness of the Son of God. You see, our sin was bought and paid for by the shed blood of Jesus Christ on the cross. See, our defensive team, our defense team, doesn't have to try to win the case based on our innocence or our holiness because, quite frankly, we don't measure up. He's ready to win the case based on his record, based on his holiness, offered up in my stead, offered up in your stead. You see, he's told the judge, Your Honor, I take, I take on all of his sin and offer up as payment for that sin my sinless life, my righteousness. I offer up myself as a sacrifice for his life. And the judge accepts his offer. He takes our iniquity and places it on Jesus. 2 Corinthians 5.21, he says, For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. He takes our iniquity and places it on Jesus, and he takes Jesus' righteousness, his pure vestments, and he puts them on us. Thank you, Lord. He's taking our blame. And has satisfied the wrath of God. He has become our propitiation. He is the propitiation for our sins. 1 John 2, 2. And 1 John 2, uh, 4, 10. In this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that he loved us. And sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. In verses 31 through 34 of chapter 8 begin to show us why, for those who love God, we have nothing to fear and are clothed with the robes of righteousness. These verses ask four questions and give four answers that help us to understand and have confidence in knowing without any doubt that we have nothing to fear. So this this morning we're going to look at those four questions and the, the answers Paul gives us for those questions. But before we get into that, 
we're going to briefly look at the question that does not have uh, explicit an explicit answer. And that's the first part of verse 31, which I've also given as my title for this message. What then shall we say to these things? What then shall we say to these things? This, this question, what then shall we say to these things, is what I would describe as a fulcrum of a seesaw. The center point upon which the seesaw totters. You know, you know what a, a seesaw is, right? Or a, a teeter-totter? When, when I was growing up in elementary school, we had these seesaws. Some would have one. The poorer schools would have one. The richer schools would have four. And um, what it is, is it's this, this flat board that's, that's balanced on this one portion, the fulcrum. And so kids would get on it, and they would push themselves off the ground, and they would seesaw. They would rock back and forth, right? So anyway, this, this question in verse 31 is what I consider this fulcrum. What then shall we say to these things? I used to think that this question applied to everything before it in chapter 8, verses 1 through 30. Remember, there was no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, the Holy Spirit freeing us from the bondage of sin and death, receiving the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father, fellow heirs of God with Christ, for we consider the sufferings of this present time not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us, Creation has grown in the pains of childbirth, and not only creation, but we ourselves groan as we eagerly wait for the adoptions as sons, the redemption of our bodies. This is all in verses 1 through 30. The Holy Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And for those whom he called, he also justified. And for those whom he justified, he also glorified. It seems logical that this question, what then shall we say to these things, was referencing everything that we read in chapter 8 so far. And it could be, but it's actually not. It's not. The question in the beginning of verse 31 is regarding the questions he's about to ask in verses 31 through 34. Clearly the answer to this rhetorical question is supported by the verses 1 through 30, but the question, what then shall we say to these things, is directed at the questions in the next few verses. It's beautiful. Paul gives us all this ammunition in the first 30 verses. The fulcrum of chapter 8, except there's no seesawing. There's, this, there's no teeter-tottering. Verses 1 through 30 is solidly balanced by the fulcrum in verse 31 with the other side of the seesaw being solidly supported by the remaining verses. What then shall we say to these things? We have all this supporting truth to answer the questions in verses 31 through 34 with an additional question in verse 35, which Todd will talk about next week. 
So let's look at those questions. Let's look at the first question now. Who can be against us? Verse 31, if God is for us, who can be against us? God, the creator of the universe, is not some fickle being, some mere human that can like you one minute and dislike you or turn against you the next. If you've got it in your head that God is just waiting for you to make a mistake so that he can teach you a lesson by bringing judgment upon you, if you think that every bad thing that happens to you is just punishment in an effort to get you to conform, if you think that you still need to do righteous deeds in order to earn God's favor or approval, then just maybe you still don't have a clear and unwavering understanding of the verses that Pastor Mark just went over the last three weeks. Verses 28 through 30. Let's read them again. And we know, without a doubt, we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to His purpose. For those whom He foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son in order that He, that is Jesus, might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom He predestined, He also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. I added emphasis because I wanted to point out that it was God who did the forbearing, for, for knowing. It was God who predestined. It was God who called. It was God who justified. It was God who glorified. In this is love, not that we loved him. Not that we have loved God, but that he loved us. 1 John 4.10 Here's another emphasis in these verses that we cannot let escape. It is the word also. The word also. God didn't... God didn't God didn't foreknow some then predestined them and called them but then stopped there to let some be in limbo No Paul helps us to understand completion by including the word also for those whom God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. For those whom God predestined, he also called. For those whom God called, he also justified. And for those whom God justified, he also glorified. If you're still wondering if God is for you, 
Read verses 28 to 30 over and over and over and over again. And also read Hebrews 13, 5, where he said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. See, God is not man that he should lie. Numbers 23, 19. If God is for us, who can be against us? Should Satan ever hassle you regarding whether God truly loves you, or if he tries to put doubt in your head about God being for you, look to the cross. Look to the cross. He who did not spare his own son. Question number two. How will he not also give us all things? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Listen, when you start with the most that you can give, how will the rest not be trivial? <laughs> Look, in order for there to be true reconciliation between us, the sinner, and God, the one who we sinned against, a holy, sinless, righteous one would have to atone for those sins. Who is able? You? Me? The only way it could happen is for God to send his holy, sinless, righteous son to be that sacrifice. He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. That whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. John 3, 16. God has already given us his most treasured possession. His beloved son. Anything we could ask for or need beyond that pales in comparison. And so if it is in line with the sovereign purpose for us, his sovereign purpose for us, for those who are called according to his purpose, then yes, we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. And this love also affords us his protection. Question number three, who shall bring any charge against God's elect. Verse 33, who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is going to bring charges or accusations against you? Not God. He has justified you. He has declared you innocent of all charges. But Satan is still trying to accuse. That's what he does. He's the accuser. In Zechariah, it is God who rebukes Satan. And throughout all his accusations, he says in verse 2, chapter 3, And the Lord said to Satan, The Lord rebuke you, O Satan, the Lord who has chosen Jerusalem, 
rebuke you. I now get to quote myself from the sermon I did back in 2018. I said this, I love how the word rebuke is not plural here. God didn't need a whole bunch of rebukes to shut him down to end it all. With one singular rebuke, he stopped it even before it began. The Lord rebuke you, O Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. And just like God chose Jerusalem, he has chosen you and me. And he rebukes Satan, the accuser. He rebukes Satan, the accuser, from bringing any charge against God's elect. See, it is God who justifies his chosen. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? No one. It is God who justifies. The next question is very similar to the previous question. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? Except it has a different answer. The previous question, who shall bring any charge against God's elect, was answered with, not God... It's God who justifies. The next question, who is, to get, who is to condemn, is answered with, not Jesus. It is Jesus who is indeed interceding for us. So let's look at the fourth question. Who is to condemn? Verse 34, who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised? Who is at the right hand of God? Who indeed is interceding for us? Paul is saying, look, it's Jesus Christ, the sinless one, the one who took on our sins and sacrificed his life to make payment for those sins and died on the cross for those sins, who not only died but was raised, and who has the honor of being at the right hand of God, and who is indeed interceding for us, who is there to condemn? Who can bring any condemnation? Who can bring any valid accusation that has not already been paid for by the death, by his death on the cross? He is the lawyer that wins all cases brought against the ones that God has chosen and given to him. He doesn't have to evaluate whether he can win the case or not because he knows that his sacrifice was sufficient. And how does he know that? Because God accepted it. He who did not spare his own son. And that's why we can hold fast to these truths. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. The Holy Spirit has set us free from the bondage of, to sin and death. We are heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. 
provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. We recently celebrated Martin Luther King Jr. Day, January 20th, and I was reminded of his I Have a Dream speech. I'd like to quote the last paragraph of his speech for you now. <coughs> now, I'm not going to be able to read it like, like he said it, you know, with his reverend voice, you know, his Southern Baptist reverend voice, but the words are, are important here. When we allow freedom to ring, when we let it ring from every city and every hamlet, from every state and every city, we will be able to speed up that day when all of God's children, black men and white men, Jews and Gentiles, Protestants and Catholics, will be able to join hands and sing in the words of the old Negro spiritual, free at last, free at last, thank God Almighty. We are free at last. Today we are free from the bondage to sin and death. Free from the chains of, of death. Bought by the shed blood of Jesus Christ on the cross. In the age to come, we will be free from oppression. Free from tyranny free from persecution, free from tribulation, and free from suffering. We will have glorified bodies and we'll hold hands and sing, free at last, free at last. Thank God Almighty, we are free at last. What then shall we say to these things? God is for us. Who can be against us? Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for not sparing your son, but sending him to take on our sins and give his life so that I may have life. Thank you, Father, for your love for us. Without which we would be lost. Thank you, Father, for your Son. In Jesus' name, pray amen.